So I have been a huge fan of Truniagen for years, and that's why I am super excited to share that I've recently began partnering with them. I literally don't miss a day taking it. And if I were to only take one supplement, this is the one. And here's why. Our bodies produce a molecule called NAD, which is critical for our cellular energy and repair. But the levels sadly decline as we age. A nutrient that can help increase our NAD is a form of vitamin B3 called nicotinamide riboside, otherwise known as NR. It is the most efficient way to get this is through this Truniagen because it's the best NAD precursor around. Truniagen helps support our bodies against everyday stressors that can really damage our cells like overeating, drinking, staying up too late. In my opinion, no one is too young to take it. I wish I knew about this in my early 30s. And what's most amazing is that Truniagen is backed by 18 clinical trials and has endorsements of two Nobel Prize winning scientists. So go check it out at truniagen.com. That's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N. And we have a special offer for new customers to receive $20 off orders of $100 or more using the code HUSTLE20. So definitely run, don't walk, and scoop some up now. Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Today on the podcast, we have Josh Peck. Josh is one of the most recognizable faces of our generation. He is an actor. He's a writer. He's a stand-up comic. He's a, a super, super successful YouTuber, social media star. Uh, he's really done it all. And he really rose to fame with his hit show on Nickelodeon called Drake and Josh, uh, which had four seasons. He's done multiple other movies, TV shows, and his latest project is his first book called Happy People Are Annoying. And it was hilarious. It's basically just a culmination of his years learning, growing, how he broke into the show business, the like trials, the tribulations in a super honest, raw, hilarious way. I really wasn't expecting to love the book as much as I did, um, but I did. And I just really love Josh. He's super kind. He's really funny and so down to earth, which I love to see when someone has the type of success that he has. Hopefully you guys love the podcast. If not, please let me know and send me some type of uh, comment, either love, hate, I'm not sure, and leave a review. And with that, without further ado, here is the podcast. All right, you guys. So today on the podcast, we have Josh Peck. Thank you for being here. Thank you. He wrote a new book called Happy People Are Annoying. And let me just tell you a little bit of a little background. Uh, Josh is, of course, a humongous child actor. I think probably one of the biggest. You had a huge show called Drake and Josh. Yes. Okay, and tons of others. Amanda Bynes show, blah, blah, blah. He's also a stand-up comedian, a social media star, a YouTuber, obviously, uh, and an, obviously now just an overall actor. Uh, and we're going to get into his whole career. And I'm just so excited to have you because, like I said, you've done it all. And some of the things that I, I read in your book were so shocking to me. Uh, <laughs> I really, like I said before we started, I love this book. It's really, really funny. 
You did a great job. Oh man, thank you. Uh, and I noticed also that you thanked Ryan Holiday, who's also a big writer who's been on the podcast. Oh wow. Yeah. Did he help you with the book or? Ryan was an advisor on the book. Oh, okay. And if you like it, it's probably because of Ryan. Um, no, I, I don't think so. Well, maybe, maybe. I, I got to give him all the credit in the sense of, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to be friends with him for a long time and had him on my podcast and we knew each other even before he was sort of this prolific author, modern day um, stoic genius that he is now. And <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a really nice thing to say about him. Wow. He, and you know what really bugs me? He's young. Younger than me. I know. He's like 34, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I'll call him for advice and I'll be like, I can't believe. Like, I, I feel like I'm talking to like some old sage. Yeah. And I forget that I like, you're 87, aren't you? I know. He has an old soul, it feels like, right? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, how do you write about that and be so young and, you know, properly? And he's written like a hundred books, legit, like so many books. And like, so, like, I think most of them are like bestsellers and he's so young. It's, it's crazy, actually. Oh, he crushes it. Yeah. Like, when I got this this book deal, I, I decided that I knew I wanted to write it myself and I didn't want a ghostwriter. Right. I, felt, I felt confident enough that I would get something, you know, quasi okay out there, but I could only relate it to show business. And I was like, what's a producer in books? Yeah. Right. And I knew that I had this incredible editor through through um, Harper One who who published the book, but I was like, I need someone I can bug more. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> totally. I don't. I get it. I get it. And I, you know, I said to Ryan, I was like, I need a producer. I need right. someone who can read my pages, give me notes, tell me where I've sort of gone off track, and then I can take their notes and and incorporate that. And he was like, Yeah, I would love to help you. So. He really, he read every chapter and then kind of read it once, once it was all done. Well, what's amazing is like, it feels like it was like, I don't know you, of course, I just met you now, but it feels like I know you because it's written. So I feel very honest and authentic and it's funny and it's weird because it's strangely relate, even though like I'm much older than you are. It's like, it feels relatable. You make it very relatable. Like there's a couple of things or a bunch of stuff that you do talk about when I'm going to talk about it on this podcast. Then I'm like, oh my God, I totally understand what he's saying. And uh, your journey to me is very relatable. So you did a very good job if that's what you were trying to do to get people to resonate because a lot of times when people write a memoir from being an actor, it, it's so disconnected from other people's life and what they're going through. Sure. And you did the opposite in a way. So thank you. I, you're welcome. I, I think that was what I learned at, it, you know, it only took me 35 years <laughs> was sort of like these challenges that I had gone through that I really, you know, from losing a hundred pounds when I was 17, that was sort of the first thing that I noticed where I desperately wanted to rewrite my origin story. And I feel like we all sort of suffer from that where we go through our awkward teenage years and then we burn our yearbooks and swear our family to secrecy. Right. But, <laughs> like, so true. My awkward teenage years are in reruns. Yes. So I couldn't get away from it. And then I also feel like I'm that last generation where celebrities were mysterious and they would come out every totally. 18 months to promote a film and do a talk show or something exciting. But they weren't on social media every day. Exactly. And like, first of all, let's even back up. Okay. So sure. we start this book and it sounds like you, obviously you and your mom are super close yes. and you call it like a start. You guys are like a startup. Okay? <laughs> yeah. What do you, okay. So there's two questions are my first two questions. Number one, um, 
what made you decide, because you are only 35, to write this book now and, and call it Happy People? Why is the title Happy People Are Annoying? And then I want you to go into your like how your mom and you are like a startup. I um yeah, I, I would say uh, writing a memoir at 35 is perhaps the most millennial thing I've ever done. <laughs> like, I know, like my life's complete. Yeah, um, exactly. I, you know, it was a reluctant memoir because I, what I felt was specific about me writing this and because I'm so obsessed with optimization and self-help and, you know, facing drugs and alcohol and food stuff and all these things that I really, these challenges that I had to, to completely humble myself to, to finally walk through. I knew that like other people that had perhaps dealt with that, but also what, to your point, when you read something uh, from a self-help person or a guru, it naturally, or at least I found there is some separation mm -hmm. and you think like this person is such a Buddha, mm -hmm. like how could they ever know like the pain that I'm going through? But I thought, well, they knew me, they saw my pain, mm -hmm. right? Like I could qualify it being like, I was there, you saw it, you watched me every week. And like, even though I wasn't telling you at 21 or 25 that I was desperately insecure, there's a lot of evidence to support it. Mm -hmm. So I hope that if anyone could find some similarities or a reprieve in the book, it would be aided by the fact that it was someone who they grew up with. Right. So they knew they weren't like being misled. But, you know, I talk about my mom. I never met my dad. Um, she was a single mom and I was her only child. And growing up, I would notice that friends' families seemed more like a closed corporation and that the parents were upper management and the kids were employees sort of being barked down orders. But my mom and I were like a startup and you know, sometimes the CEO has to sweep the floors and other times the assistant gets to pitch the big clients. Like we were muddling through life together. We were co-captains because we couldn't have that sort of um, standard parental child um, setting just out of necessity. Right. Yeah. What was interesting also is that, and I, I couldn't believe that, that you did stand up at eight years old. Yeah. I, I had to go back and read that again because I have a like I have a kid who just turned nine and a kid that's turning seven. I can't even imagine that yeah. happening. So like, were you like when you were like even smaller? What were you even like? How did that even happen? How did you even like get on the stage? Like that is insane to me at such a young age. Was your mother like p pushing you? What was the what was the I guess the trajectory at such a small age to even do that? Well, you hear about, look, and, and you've worked with so many athletes, right? Like how many, it, it's perhaps not the best thing, but how many great athletes do we have today because of like admonishing judgmental fathers who were too hard on them uh, on the baseball field? It's a ton. People like do their best work sometimes when you have a chip on your shoulder. That fuels right. you a lot of times. Was that kind of your thing? Well, I would say not, not in a negative sense, but... I modeled myself or I was seeking value from what I grew up in my environment, knowing there was value because we were like a musical theater family. My mom, my mom is 77. She had me at 43. Yeah. So I would like, you know, she missed the great generation of music. I'd say like, oh man, like what was Woodstock like? And she'd be like, Woodstock? So muddy. <laughs> She's like, I was at a Barbara Streisand concert in Central Park. Like right. that's more my speed. Absolutely. I'm like, all right, you know, much love Babs. Yeah. Um, and also like a lot of your Jewish things about like the Jewish, like how you were like funny at the at the table, like when how like people, your whole, I, I, this is what I related to, like how 
you know, when we get to your food stuff also, like you don't leave the table until you finish your food and everything yes. revolved around eating, right? Because that's like a whole other thing, which I found very resonates with me, obviously. Sure. Um, but so, sorry, so continue on with your eight-year-old stand-up <laughs> comic situation. So I knew, you know, I love when Howard Stern talks about how his father was a radio engineer. Mm -hmm. And so that was his introduction to radio. And for me, it was similar. Like my mom and I would sneak into Broadway shows mm -hmm during this, you know, intermission, and we'd only see the second act, but we got to watch it for free. So, and, so cute. and being like a chubby kid growing up, there's very little, there are very few things that can allow you to rise to the level of adult, mm -hmm. to get the respect, to get the eyes, the attention of a room. And you could be a great musician, or you could be a comedian. It's kind of it. And so as soon as I saw that my mom had this natural proclivity for being funny and imagine being a woman and, and you know, a, a businesswoman in the seventies and eighties, like what my mom had to contend with in the business world, she was like, oh, F this, like, mm -hmm. I'm going to need an arsenal to make sure that like no one tries to run me over. Right. So I would watch her go into rooms and just take them over and be like, the comedy is here, sit down and buckle up. Right. And so as soon as I saw that at eight years old, that I could too possess that power. I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've always been searching for. But obviously, like people can say that you, funny is, is one of those things where either you're funny or you're not. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? You can't like you're born that way. And then you can you can like work on that craft and that skill. Right. Yeah. But like there are some people who no matter like you can recognize funny, but you just can't be funny. Yes. How did you even have that? Like, how did you even hone that at such a small age even? Yeah, I don't know if there was anything inherent except that I come from funny people, but I I think so. It was it was obviously a genetic. It it fought kind of you were you were already had that gene to be funny. I think that, and it was also aided by sometimes I'll be around very attractive people and they'll try to go tit for tat with jokes or something. And in my mind, what I want to say is I'm probably funnier than you, yeah. but I would have traded it all to have your face. Right, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I trade it all, <laughs> like seriously. But yeah, it's like an old saying, like funny people are usually funny for very unfunny reasons. Yeah, so, you said that in the book and I thought that was very astute. And also you say that, you know, you can, there's a lot of things you can be, but no one's ever too funny. You never hear, oh my God, that person's just too funny. You think yes. it'd be, too smart or, you know, to this or to that. But when you're funny and you talk about this, then it also could, you kind of lead the narrative. Like mm -hmm. you can, if you are overweight and you're uncomfortable and insecure to your point where you're saying like, people are usually very funny for very unfunny reasons. Like you learn other ways to kind of, I build your arsenal, I guess, for people yeah. not to like bully you at that age or any other reason. But so how, like, so and then how did you end, tell people, cause I, it's in the book, but how, how did you end up on a stage like at eight? Like that was to me, this is what chutzpah is in its, in its like real way. And, and for those of you who don't know what chutzpah is, he's going to tell you, but how you did that at eight years old is truly like, it's like a drive that most people at eight, seven don't really have, you know, it's one thing to be funny. Were you driven by necessity also? Cause your mother was a like a, like a single mom and yeah. you kind of had to figure it out. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, um, for any of our listeners who aren't totally familiar with Yiddish, which I'm sure is not a lot, but for the couple out there, um, chutzpah is like balls. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, it was a perfect storm. Like I was, uh, uh, 
this only child and I was obsessed with TV and sitcoms. And so I was just watching them for my enjoyment, but through osmosis, I was learning the rhythms. Mm. And then I also had this defense mechanism because I was overweight and felt like I walked into every situation at, um, at a disadvantage and that I had to, to win you over because you made a snap judgment about me the moment I walked in the room that I didn't deserve all your respect. Now, maybe that was in my head, and probably there was some evidence to support that, especially at that time before the great sort of body positivity of the last mm. sort of decade. So all those things combined made me uniquely able to sort of hone this, this for me, what was kind of like a superpower. And then I started doing like a little bit of kids theater and, and I would excel at that just because I was like chubby and ambitious <laughs> and uh, willing to do anything. And then... There was a magazine, I don't know if it's still in print, called Backstage, which was like the actor's newspaper in New York. I don't know how I got my hands on it, but there was a classified section in the back and I was eight years old. My mom and I were struggling, like didn't have a lot of money, didn't know what was gonna be next for us. And all I saw was this ad for a kid's talent management company called Sid Gold at Gold Star Entertainment. <laughs> Shout out Sid Gold. It's amazing. And he, I met him and he was like, if you can get five minutes of stand up together, I can get you booked at a club. Like, it's kind of my thing. And I was like, what a niche. Like, wait, so okay, what, again, so then you really, you went to the back of backstage, you called this guy yourself? I don't, I probably, probably. I mean, to again, this is like, this is not, this is very unusual at such a small age. I mean, that just shows again, you you already you had the gumption and the drive at such a small which is again is that an innate thing is that because how do you learn that at such a small age was your was your mother very aggressive because she was trying to make money to support you guys so you saw that in her and so it just kind of through osmosis also it happened that you were like that as well like out of necessity I guess I think so but the pressure was never on me, especially at eight or nine, like to, right. That's to help, but I wanted to, like, I just knew, I didn't know it then, but it came pretty quickly, like around 12, around 11 or 12 years old, where I was like, oh, I've now got this unique thing. And it's one of the few things as a kid where you can make adult money. Yeah. Doing. And I desperately wanted to feel security and my mom gave it to me as best she could, but you know, she just was, it, we were limited. Yeah. And so I just remember specifically thinking like, I don't know if I was aware of it at eight, but certainly if I like did a deep dive with my shrink, he'd be like, oh, if you followed the, if you, if we really track this, right. you were seeking some sort of security. But, and my mom says this too, and I think this is right. Like she said, if it was baseball, if it was little league mm -hmm. or the violin or academics, I would have supported you in that. It just happened to be this, yeah, which is weird, and you know brings on a lot of you know make, can make you a public person at a really early age. I mean, no, no kidding, a very yeah. young age. So then, did you? So the, so Sid says to you, can create this five minute you know bit. So did you go home and like create a five minute bit? I did. I just, I basically like stole jokes from my mom that I'd heard her tell around the <laughs> dinner table for years. I did impressions of my grandmother and made fun of kids at school. And, you know, it was like a tight five minutes. And I'm sure I was getting some pity laughs at the novelty of this nine-year-old being up there, but 
it started really working for me. And I started doing it at clubs all over New York. They'd sneak me in through the back so they wouldn't lose their liquor license. Right, right. And it sort of culminated in doing, you know, Rosie O'Donnell show, the Conan O'Brien show, and and becoming like a stand-up that's on late night and midday with Rosie. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still. Yeah, a wild sort of thing. And I slowly like would move up as far as managers and agents went. Sorry, Sid. Appreciate you. Poor Sid. (laughs) Believing in me from Jump Street. I think Sid's still crushing it. Really? (laughs) Yeah, he's he's awesome. Oh my gosh. So why did you leave Sid if he was so great? I mean, I hope he'll take me back. I mean, maybe he will. (laughs) I don't know. You kind of, you kind of left for a while there. It's been a small sabbatical. Yeah. But I've got, I believe in Sid. He's a forgiving dude. He must be old now. How old is Sid? Like 100? Yeah. I mean, 70s, 80s. Wow. He's probably still crushing it amazing uh, i'm sure he's like now he has julia roberts oh really no, okay <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say oh my gosh well yeah, yeah. Sid Gold's like well i i found someone else too and her name's jennifer lawrence right <laughs> <laughs> exactly so you know you're lost <laughs> exactly so then okay so then you start doing that then you get recognized on conan and rosie and all these other things is that when you decided to go to the school for the performing arts or like mm. tell that what what it, how did that happen Yes. Yeah, so I, I basically, you know, my mom, again, we were going through like a really challenging summer because most of our life was like fairly middle class-ish. But then as it goes with someone who's like a, a self-made business person, the way my mom was, we would we would hit some rough times. And right. I remember we were in this little studio apartment and it was the end of summer and we'd sort of been displaced. So now I couldn't go to the middle school that was in my district. I didn't have a district anymore. All right. And so it was late August and she looked at me and said, why don't you audition for that school, that performing arts school we've heard about? And I thought, why not? And I auditioned and 10 days later, I'm walking the halls of the school and there's dancers from the Alvin Ailey school and instrumentalists and people belting out like with some of the most impressive voices you've ever heard just walking down the hallway. And so I used to be a freak in a school of normal people. And now I was just like a freak amongst freaks. Right, right, right. The musical theater kids. And and then there were also these kids who were on Broadway or on television shows and movies. And suddenly I was like, oh, like my Jewish relatives who up until now have always said like, this is a cute hobby, <laughs> like, but you're majoring in business. Right. Or right. you'd be a doctor or a lawyer right. or you should be. Yeah. Yeah. You need a, a backup plan. Mm-hmm. And I say in the book, I'm like, what am I, a Boy Scout backup plan? Like, yeah, yeah. Suddenly I saw all these people who were doing the thing that I loved and making a living doing it. And I, I said, oh, I'm all in. Like I remember specifically at 12 being like, no more, you know, keeping sort of like the brakes on. Right. And I fully gave myself to this thing. And rather quickly, I, I kind of leveled up on a on a, a success level. How hard is it to get into that school? I don't I don't think terribly hard when I auditioned. <laughs> well, we no, like Alicia of, Keys went there. Yeah. A bunch of big people went there. Yeah, Claire Danes. Claire Danes. Jesse Eisenberg. No, I think like, I mean, I started at sixth grade there. So I think that... I, I, you know, you had to audition and you had to have the the right grades to get in. And it's probably really hard now. I think when I started, it was just early days in yeah. that school. Was it like, I'm, I'm just curious, what, do they do real like math and English? Like, how does it break down like for kids? Like, is it, do you have a day full of re- like regular uh, 
subjects and then you have performance intermittent like how does it work i'm just curious how those kind of schools even work no it's weird so it's um you have a core curriculum for the first five periods of your day so you have math science a language you'd go to lunch and then you'd have like humanities so english and social studies and then at 115 you would go to your major so if you were a dancer you went to the alvinelli school if you were a drama or a vocalist you do five days of drama or vocal and then i was a musical theater major so it was two days drama two days vocal one day dance and as you can tell i excelled at dance yes <laughs> of course i mean i would expect nothing less josh Please. obviously <laughs> Uh, so there you are. So then you're auditioning all the time. You talk about it now. And then, um, which is, okay, then, then you, uh, well, you, you got some movie, right, with uh, Chevy Chase. Yes. Which, by the way, I love from Vacation. But So good. I mean, the best. Uh, and then this is the story that I think is very, people on this, for this podcast would appreciate, because I talk about this a lot. Mm. I did a whole TED Talk on this, about asking for what you want in life. Mm. And you went and what you, you barged up to the president of Nickelodeon, and you basically said to him that you wanted you know, put to put you on some hit show or something, right? Yes. Again, chutzpah. I mean, the, the fat, like, how did, like, so, and and by the way, like, in my, what I always say is you, you, if you don't ask, you don't get, right? Like, you sure. never know what can happen. Like, the worst he says is like, you know, fuck off, kid. Like, <laughs> right. what can happen? Who kind of like, pr- who kind of like prompted that? Where did that come from? And how that was in, from the book, it seems, that changed the, that ask, mm changed the entire, like the whole trajectory of your entire career, in my, wasn't it? Or Absolutely. I mean, here I am doing this film, like never been out of the country. I remember my agent called my mom. I was sitting there eating chicken nuggets and she's like, he booked the movie. And my mom was like, what do you mean? Like the movie that he auditioned for, it's he amazing. got the part. Like you're leaving for Canada in five days. Hope your passports are ready. Right. And my mom was like, we don't have passports. Right. And so, you know, we fly to Canada and I'm filming this film and, and Chevy Chase and Chris Elliott, Gene Smart, like real heavy hitter. Yeah. Incredibly talented people. Was that movie a success, by the way? It was. Okay. And it was with Nickelodeon. And I remember I'm like making this guy laugh one day, giving him my best sort of bits from stand up. And my mom sort of said- That you stole from your mom. Yeah, mostly her. Yeah, your mom should have bought the show then. But anyway. (laughs) I know, don't plant that in her head. (laughs) You know, I'm sure that's in the back of her mind for the last 20 years. But, you know, she sidles up to me and she goes, you know who that is? That's the president of Nickelodeon, this guy, Albie Hecht. And I said, great. She's like, you know, there's that show that you've been dying to be on your whole life, all that, which was like SNL for kids. Right. She told me you want to do it. I said, okay. And I don't know how I summoned the chutzpah except for the fact that I was 12. So I really had no amount of like I, I, insecurity right. didn't take over till another year or two. Right. Um, it's also like na- like naivety. It's a, it's a real strength, right? Because you don't know, right? Like who yeah. cares? Like you don't think about that. You're not overthinking that. Oh my God. I, 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 he may say no. The failure. People don't do things like that because they're so scared of the rejection or the failure. You don't have yeah. that. Also the auditioning. You're so used to just being like, no, no, no it kind of just didn't even occur to you that that would be something that was kind of outrageous for a 12 year old to ask. Yeah. The uh, David Mamet has this great quote where he says like the easily shamed will never learn. Right. And I think that's true. Great one. I I think it's really true. And so I, I, I mentioned it to him and you know, they, I, I, I attribute Albie to like 
throughout life, you'll meet a lot of other people on boats who are like sort of wading the same storm that you are. But like sometimes you meet the water and when they rise, they lift you up with them. And that was Albie. Like he had, he was one of those rare people that had the power to really mm -hmm. give you a shot. And he was willing to take that shot on me. So nine months later, we got a call from him and he said, Josh, I, I want to tell you, you're going to go be on the Amanda show and I'm going to move you and your mom out to California. And it was the call that changed my life. And, and to my mom's credit, uh, in addition to all the things she did for me, like I was sort of on the fence. Yeah. Because I was like, leave New York. Like, you were on the fence. Because I had no comprehension of that. I was like, things are going great now. Right. Like, I love this school. We've got some money. Like I did a movie. Like and and Amanda Show wasn't all that. I didn't know it well. Right. So I was just kind of like, and my mom sort of having the foresight. She said, "Listen, this is huge." She's like, "Try it. Let's try it for six months. If you hate it, we'll come back, and we'll never have to do it again." And to her credit, whenever people say to her, as I already said, like, like, did you know Josh was gonna have success? She's like, no, I just knew it was like the only thing giving my chubby son confidence and joy. So wow. I wanted to support him. That's amazing. I mean, so was Amanda big at that point? Was or Massive. She, she was already massive. Cause yeah. I can't, the, the, the chronological order, like what was she doing before she did the Amanda Bynes show, all, all that. that. So she yeah. was on that show. And so that's why they gave her this show. Yes. And then, wow. So in the nine months before, like after the Snowy Days movie, uh -huh. and then I'm gonna tell you, I read your book. I know you don't believe me. I no, I do. Did. I was like riveted by this. Uh, that between, and then by the way, it's not just, I, I, I'm old and I'm in my 40s and I liked it. So I'm just letting you know, Thank people, you. okay? Um, so between the nine months, between the Snowy Days movie and that phone call, were you working? Did you get any jobs between that or you were just at yeah. school? And I wanted, I think I, I was doing some other jobs and also just at that point, it was like, I was, you know, I'd do a commercial, you do did, like yeah. a thing here and there. Not but the Oreo commercial, we know. No Oreo commercials. Yeah. The uh, Chubby Kids, shout out Oreos, shout out Nabisco. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Chubby Kids were not uh, allowed regularly in, in junk food commercials, which. Which is their so unbelievable given what it is, but <laughs> um, talk about false advertising. So yeah. then, all right. So then you get here, you're on the Amanda Bowling show. How, and then what happens? Uh, so Did I, you like it? Were they nice oh, yeah. to you? I mean, at every turn, whenever I've like doubled down and sort of said, this is the level in which I want to play it. I don't know if I'm capable I think, you know, I always have a suspicion, but it was like, when I went to performing arts school, I leveled up. And so I was forced to meet my peers yeah. and take it really seriously. And then I had dreams of doing, you know, sketch comedy or broad sitcom comedy on this kids network, which was like the mountaintop. So when I arrived at the Amanda show, I was like, oh, it's time to level up again. Right. And I watched people like Amanda who was so, you know, we're six months apart in age, but she was so far beyond me right. in ability and skill. And I, I would just, you know, I, I talk about it, uh, you know, they kind of iced me the first couple months I was there as far as like, they didn't know who I was. And I had sort of been pushed on them by this president of the network a little bit, or like highly suggested. Yes, highly they, suggested. They cast me. Yeah. And so they were like, we gotta get to know you. Like, so, but instead of being resentful or like, why am I playing waiter number three in sketches? Yeah. I would watch Amanda and people like that and, and, and try to sort of 
reverse engineer what was their sparkle. Like, what was she doing that made it so compelling and funny? And at this time, also, you're you're quite how you're overweight. Like, what were you? How much oh, did you yeah. weigh back then? I mean, at that point, probably like I, I don't know. I I think between like. 13 and, and 17, I, w I went from like 200 to 300 pounds. But I was also really, you know, I wasn't this height. Like I wasn't, I was not holding it well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't kind of, it didn't like, it wasn't like balanced based on the, uh, yeah. No, I didn't look like uh, I played, you know, uh, offensive tackle for Alabama. Right. I just looked like I was in in a bad place blood glucose wise. And that's me. So you were, were you the only very overweight kid at that time frame? Like, were you always Acting? getting, yeah. Were you always no, getting those roles? Was that, was that? It was a small, certainly a small pool of us. Yeah. But especially at that time, and I talk about it in the book, like people would say to me like, oh, you're, you're heavyweight or you're overweight and you want to be in, be an actor. Like, oh, you're going to be like John Candy or right. Chris Farley or, or Belushi, which by the way was, in certain ways, the greatest compliment ever, because those guys are geniuses, except that I knew that's not what they were saying. They were saying like, oh, if you're fat, you better be funny. Yeah. And it was like, it became, I, I say in the book, like, it's like a candy bar. It, it became um, almost Pavlovian, right? Where you'd see a, a heavy set actor who was sort of in a comedic role and they'd be like, I love this. I know this, I love this. Mm -hmm. um, and so this idea of playing anything other than the bully or the best friend as an actor or being the broad sketch comedy guy was off the table. I, you know, being the love interest or, you know, the superhero, right. it was never gonna happen for me. So you were limiting your ability for acting roles because of what, of kind of like you were getting typecasted as like the best friend or- Totally. Right, or uh, the bully or whatever. Sure. Um, so when you got, Drake and Josh, not Josh and Drake, right? Drake and Josh? Yeah. yeah. That was, and that was like the big show that really catapulted you, mm. right? Like that was like now you're, yeah, it was like a five, how long did it run for? I mean, it's still, uh, it's still on in reruns every day, but we made 60 episodes. We didn't make that much, but I think it's a bit of a misnomer or like it wasn't popular when it was on. It wasn't? No, but that's because it was a kid show on a kid network. And so- like every day I would do the show and have a great time doing it. And then I would go home to like my apartment complex and go over to my friend Len's house and his mom would make us pizza and we'd watch hockey. Like there's no social media. Right. So I, some people will say that to me now, like, what was it like to be on that show? And I say, it's more, it's more famous now because of social media it's and crazy. people grew up with it. But then what, like back then, do you remember those shows like, you know, now I, I could be wrong, but like the Amanda Bynes show or uh, Hannah, Hannah Montana. Montana. Yeah. Those were massive shows. Was it that in the same time frame as your show? Um, I think Hannah Montana was later, a little bit later, but it was- Is that was Nickelodeon? Disney. Oh, that was Disney. But That's it was kind confused. of a different, it was a, a different thing. There was no social media, right? So it wasn't- But she was massive back then. Yeah. She I, couldn't walk out of her house, because- No, she's super famous. <laughs> like she was super famous, but I'm saying like, it was the same time frame. There was no social media. Right. And that show, Hannah Montana was like massive. I don't, I'm trying to think of another show, like Lizzie McGuire, is that possible? Yeah, but I think Lizzie, like, uh, I feel like we're getting into like the, the um, stats of, of kid shows. Like, yeah. I'm, so I'm trying to remember like, I think Lizzie and Drake and Josh were very similar. Like 
we did like a couple seasons and it came and went. Right. Yeah. And then just Hillary being so great. Like I, I'm on a show with her now, which is like a millennial. Right. Like millennials minds are melting. They're like, what's Lizzie and Josh from Drake and Josh? I, doing I can together? imagine. You've been on a ton of shows though. She, yeah. Right. I mean, she's, she's awesome. But I just remember we were done with Drake and Josh when Hannah Montana was like hitting this stride. And certainly like her or like Ariana Grande who came from right. Nickelodeon. I think when you have someone that's so undeniable, like, Miley and, and Ariana was like, they were easy. They easily sort of uh, separated themselves from the pack, which was more like people like me who right. were like, I'm an actor amongst actors and I don't want to be pigeonholed like this, but I also don't, I'm not also beautiful and incredibly talented singer, actor, and can do everything. Right, you know? right, right. So also girl versus guy though, too, right? Because they were singers and they did all, they did a whole, al they did albums. Sure. So that was, they were able to like do a different vertical to kind of expand their business, right? People can buy it yeah, know, at the time. But they're just undeniable. They're just total stars. Like, and it, I'm not taking anything away from me or, yeah. or, or someone else, but like, it just was so clear at an early age how different and elite they were compared to their peers. It was. Oh, even I back think so. then. I think so. Because like, you know, again, you talk about this in the book and I said this to you before. I could not, the, the amount of money that you people think that you're making as a kid star mm. is so not accurate. Like I thought you guys were making like a fortune. Sure. I think that's most people's assumption and you know you talk like you're making like nothing i mean not nothing but you're making something but like you need to work like it's not like you're like having a 20 million dollar house in the hills no it's certainly not i mean i had a very lovely two-bedroom apartment rented right uh, <laughs> right I wanna, yes i had a um you know a five series bmw which right. isn't the three series right right le you, lease right lease to go no. <laughs> you, you were making a, a nice living I, it was fine but to your point yeah like when i was done with the show at 19 like i maybe had like 18 months of runway left financially like i had to work and i didn't live extravagantly it just was the reality of of what that paid at that time. So is, is that all Nickelodeon people? All Did Disney people make that kind of money? Everybody across the board? I don't know. I can just speak for me. And it, it wasn't it wasn't a lot. It wasn't a lot. And there's no residuals in, in, Why? in kids TV. I don't know. There's no residual? How, how can that be? I don't know. Maybe you can, maybe you get the listeners. So I'm sure there's like some some yeah, you know, what can powerful we do about listeners. That? There must be. Some, I mean, I don't. I've made my peace with it. I'm I mean, 35. Yeah, you kind, of, you kind of like reckoned with it. But then, what? Then it was basically during you, your show that you decided to lose all your weight, though. Yes. What made you decide at 17? You know, this is enough. I wanna, I wanna basically lose the weight and make that. Like, what was kind of like that turning point for you? I. I sort of come from big people. And so I had seen food be a bit of a menacing force to uh, my kind early on. <laughs> my kind. <laughs> like, my, like um, you know, I just knew that I, this has been difficult for people in my family. And, and I've obviously inherited sort of the same proclivity for that. And I knew that like, I was always going to be, because again, like, and, and I try to say in the book, I feel like people might think that I, I'm, 
speaking in hyperbole or, you know, being mean to myself or I talk about being overweight, but it's only because I want to properly illustrate the pain that I was in at that yeah. time, which was specific to me. Like there's plenty of guys I knew growing up who were, had a belly and would take their shirt off at the pool. And I was like, oh my God, like you're a superhero. Right. And like, they don't give it, they don't care. Didn't care. Yeah. I just wasn't that way. Right. And so. When you were eating, by the way, when you were doing all of this, in your head, were you thinking, oh my God, like, what am I doing to myself as you were eating so much when you were doing this? Or that no. wasn't a thought in your head? No, I don't think I was that self-actualized at all. I just was like this, I, you know, you know, it's not great. And right. the people that love you, you know, especially like your your Jewish Yenta grandmothers, <laughs> like, or, you know, or, or aunts and uncles are just kind of like, you know, you really need to, you know. Watch maybe, it. Maybe you only, you don't need thirds. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep it to seconds. Let's keep it. But with that, like part of the Jewish culture, and I, that's why I said in the beginning of this podcast is the fact that everything is around food. Like you socialize around food. Sure. Everything is like, let's, you know, when you're thinking for me anyway, when I'm eating breakfast, I can't wait to think, I'm thinking, what can I have for lunch? And then when I'm at lunch, what, <laughs> sure. what am I having for dinner? Like part of that, like psych becomes part of your psychosis, you know, like, is that part mm. of like how it started for you? And it kind of just went from there. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to blame Judaism, but I do. I blame it all the time. No, I don't blame it. I, yeah, I just, I'm think, kidding for those of you who are listening. Yeah, okay. I, um, but yeah, because like to your point, you're right. And then yet it, like, especially being in LA, which is such an incredible food city mm -hmm. and there's so many different, like, you know, but nobody eats. So I, I don't know, like my buddy said the other day, he's like, most of the country is 20 pounds over the overweight or 30 pounds overweight. Yeah. LA people are like 10 pounds overweight, but a lot of us are still overweight. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not to judge. I, I just mean, yeah, it's like, I feel like that's the, I feel like it's like kind of, maybe you're, I see the opposite. I feel like everywhere else in the world. Yeah. People have like, they're a little more meaty here. I feel like people have two helpings, like two like spoons of their food and like leave it. I'm like, how can you do that? Like, it's like a, it, it like, it like, it's, it like kind of bothers my, the principle of it. Like, I don't understand it. I find people here on the big scale are much thinner. Maybe you're right. Maybe 10 pounds sometimes, but. But I, yeah, I mean, if you were ever going to be in a little bit more shape, it's probably if, you know, yeah. we're vain, a celly yes, people. Yes, we are, sure. right? Like, and it's hot. It's always warm outside. So you're wearing less clothes. So people are much more uh, tuned into that. Yes. But, okay. So anyway, so I digress. So then you decide at 17, so what was like, yeah, what was the turning point again? Like you're just like. Yeah, I think I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I tried it my own way so many times to, to poor results. And you I, did try a lot before that. Yeah. I think I was like the only 12 year old on Atkins. Oh, you were? <laughs> No, I'm, I'm sure. But like, yeah. yeah. By the way, poor Dr. Atkins, right? He got a pretty rough rap I considering know. it's like early keto. No, Oh, it is keto. I mean, this is like, this is a whole other <laughs> podcast that we could right. talk about, like how every diet is just repackaged by the same, like the keto, the this, everything is the same just from before, right? right. Like keto is Atkins. Right. Like, but maybe like true keto, you don't like do bacon and cheeseburgers where Atkins was a little more well, Atkins, liberal. Well, Atkins was much more protein and fat mm. but with the keto diet that i think one difference is you're not able to have that you can't like you can't have that much protein it's more about fat yes. less protein i don't know but it's like it is atkins like at I'm the end sure. of the day it's like don't eat carbs and like that's yes. basically or sugar yes. right isn't it and aren't they all kind of like that 
You're right. There's no new ancient truths, right? There like, isn't. If you move a little more and eat a little less, you will weight will come off of you. Absolutely. People don't want to hear that though. They want to hear there's a magic pill, there's a new diet that they sure. can because it's like not sexy to to say, you know, eat less, move more. That yes. doesn't seem to resonate a lot. So Big thing now is like intermittent fast. Are you an intermittent faster? I am. Yeah. See, how did I know? <laughs> you want to know about my window? <laughs> yes, I do want to know about your window. What hey, is your window? 10 to 6. 10 to 6 is your window? Yeah, and it's hard because I wake up with my son sometimes. Like when I was doing it when I was didn't have a child, I'd wake up 8-ish. Yeah. You know, and then I would just coast my way till, you know, 10. Right. And be like, ah, now I can eat. I wasn't even hungry. But a lot of times, like this morning, I woke up with my son at 6. Uh-oh. So by like 9, I'm like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in withdrawal. Yeah, like, like you I need, need to, to eat. eat. Yeah. yeah. So what'd you do? You ate? No, I had some black coffee and waited till ten. God. <laughs> Did you have anything in the black coffee, or you won't even do that? No, because it breaks your fast. It breaks your fast. Yeah. Oh my God. So there's that. So when you did it at 17, did you obviously you weren't intermittent fasting at that point, no. right? When did you start this intermittent fasting? I, I mean, and when I say that, like, I'm not great at it, but it's, it's like, I basically, what's truly allowed me to keep weight off for the last 15 or 20 years almost is I've become so adept at eyeballing calories. Yeah. And thank God I've, I've beaten myself into a place where I love working out. Yeah. And so if I can sort of eyeball what I'm eating throughout the day and know that if I have a dessert, then I can take it easy on dinner mm -hmm. or like just make up for it throughout the day. And then if I add a workout in, there's a good chance that I will stay at the weight that I'm at. Right, right, right. So you kind of like modify as you go. Yeah. So then at the age of 17 though, what did you do? Did you do the Atkins diet? Well, I, so basically what was a turning point and what we had talked about before, I wound up doing this movie called Mean Creek, which was, which won the Sundance Film Festival. And I played a bully, but he was a real person. And he was like incredibly misunderstood and had a learning disability. And, and it was the first time I really got to like act and play a real human. And, right. and it's this heartbreaking movie and you wind up hating this guy. And then halfway through the movie, your heart breaks for him. And I remember like, just the response was incredible. And I was, I was hooked on this idea of like, I can't wait 10 years. Like there wasn't Judd Apatow at that time who was like making guys who were not sort of classic leading men famous. Right. So I was like, there's not gonna be another part like this for a really long time. So if I wanna get into that arena and really contend, I need to be able to transform and I can't do that at this weight. I'm just not comfortable. Right. So. I just started, but it was the first time that instead of doing Atkins on a Monday, falling off on a Wednesday and eating poorly till the next Monday, right. I said, I gotta move a little more and eat a little less. And if I mess up one day and pound some ice cream or something, like I just have to start again the next day, like live to fight another day. More from our guests, but first a few words from our sponsor. Let's talk about what is professional today. On LinkedIn, important conversations are happening around what it means to be a professional. LinkedIn members are talking about things like needing more flexibility around where we work, how we work, and even taking time away from work to focus on family or mental health, because those things should not stunt career development or growth. Instead, they should enhance it as we show up on our own terms. And members are even putting what's most important to them in their job titles with things like podcast host slash activist slash mom. Of course, that would be mine. Uh, professional is ours to define. And our authentic self is our professional self. 
So if your LinkedIn doesn't reflect who you really are, update your job title. Post your truth. Show the world the authentic professional you. And join the conversations redefining professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, welcome professionals. So it was just more the desire for those. That was like the motivation, right? Like you wanted to play these other roles mm. that were more meaningful. So you stayed on track. And if you didn't, you kind of just, it was, you were more consistent basically. Yeah. I remember people were like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, cause you kind of have a niche like carved out here Yeah, and you know, you're going to be going up against, if you look normal, you're going to be, or I shouldn't say normal, but if you become like more of a typical normal size, normal yeah, size, average, yeah. average size, um, you're going to be auditioning against Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Jake who? Uh, no, who cares? Yeah, I got him. I got him. And I'm glad things have worked out for Jake. Um, <laughs> shout out, Jake. <laughs> nice guy. Um, but, you know, I just was like, if I could be a movie star, and but I had to say this weight, I, I'd rather just not even do it. Because wow. I'm not comfortable. Wow. And, and it was when I came to terms with that that I really was able to spend the next two years, you know, losing about 120 pounds. <sighs> How long did that take you? Two years. Wow. That's yeah. like unbelievable. Cause that takes super dedication. Cause it's super, it's hard to even like, it's hard to stay on path like that. Cause you don't see the, you don't see the, the other side, right? Like sure. you have it. So you, the desire to do the other stuff was so powerful for you. Is that when you, when did you start becoming a, like into drugs and becoming an addict and all that? Was that in the process of doing the, the weight loss? Was it helping you lose weight with like the cocaine or whatever <laughs> else? Like, Cause that's a great weight loss trick, yeah, you know? I'm t that's going to be the next way. That's intermittent fasting <laughs> with cocaine. And then it'll let, you know, oh, yeah, that leans you out for sure. The fasting is no longer intermittent. No, it's just all, it's, it's just it's fasting. All the time. It's just five day fast over, <laughs> over and over again, relapsing it. Yeah. I, um, no, I mean, it, it, it kind of tracks in that I got down to this goal weight and suddenly I was the same head in a new body, right? So, so you weren't doing the drugs all in the middle of this, all this? No. So when did you start the drugs? Like 18, 18. like right at the tail end of losing all that weight. Oh, okay. And because you still were the same human being. Same human being. And, you know, I, I sort of talk about the book in the book and I'm being specific about me, like. Me being at that weight was a byproduct of, of being uh, deeply uncomfortable and having like, whether it was the not meeting my dad or just being like inherently insecure and feeling, I mean, the, the book is called Happy People Are Annoying because I spent most of my life looking at what I thought were happy people like quarterbacks and cheerleaders and masters and Jake Gyllenhaal and like <laughs> just masters of industry. And, and I always thought, oh, they, they must have received some sort of manual at birth that I was not privy to. Like, cause it seems like things tend to hurt me more. I'm too sensitive for this world and I think too much and I obsess and all these things. And I also was sort of born into this, you know, sort of different family structure. Like, so at every turn I'm like, I'm different and I think different and this is going to be rough. So I carried that on and food was sort of my first sort of attempt at numbing and kind of quieting those thoughts. Mm -hmm. But then I thought I hit the finish line and then I was hit with this next wave of like, oh no, like good job losing the weight, but now we've got to deal with your head. Right. And, uh, and when I discovered drugs and alcohol, I was like, oh, this is so much better. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's easier for sure. So much more efficacious. So so few calories. Uh, no no calories. That's right. Unless, well, drinking has a lot of calories. Yeah, I wasn't a big drinker. You were. I was going to say yeah. a lot of Jews are not big drinkers. They like, <laughs> well, really more fall towards the drug side. I hate to say it, but um, so basically, what was the what was the first like? What who got you into them? Like, what made you start that? Besides the besides the fact of what you were going through, who was like who kind of like pushed it to you? I was just, you know, you I won't tell me probably uh, my agent. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, Sid. No, no it was a girl. It was a girl I was totally in love with. And mm. like, or I thought I was in love with. She was just very nice to me. And it, it, at 18, having like sort of restricted myself from parties and dating and stuff. Cause I was just, you know, did not, you date a lot at all? Or did you, did you date no, at all? I was no. going to say at all between Never. 16, 15, even though you were kind of famous, even though you don't think you were famous because kids shows are different. You didn't like get girls? No. Ever? <laughs> I'm sure there were some lovely girls out there that totally would have thought I was adorable, but I was not capable. I was like, I had a governor on myself. Wow. And I would dream of the day. Like I, I talk about this in the book. I'm like, I had lost all this weight and I was at the hot tub in my apartment complex. Yeah. Showbiz is pretty, um, <laughs> you know, it's pretty cute. And I was living a pretty fancy life. Right. Um, Playing hockey with your neighbor. Yeah, why not? Yeah. You know, in, in my prefab apartment in the San Fernando Valley. And these kids, like these like 19 year old kids walked into the pool area. And I was like, and normally to that point, I would have waddled upstairs and like alphabetized my DVDs so dreaming funny. about the day when I'm like, one day I'll go up to those kids and, you know, I'll go to the club with them. But I was like, well, if I'm ever going to do it, it's now. Like I had lost the weight and I talked to these kids and we wound up going to like these house parties and I became a total cliche and, and I was exposed to things I'd never been exposed to like drugs and a girl who I thought liked me. And so when she offered it, I just kind of said, why not? And what was the first drug? Was it cocaine or was it? Yeah. <laughs> that was your first drug ever? I think I'd smoked some pot before. Okay, but yeah. that but but that's like a big that's a big leap, you know, like hmm, just a little bit of pot. I'll I'll go to cocaine. Well, but I I never seen it. I was like, right. oh, that's stuff that's from movies. That's so true. It's like less <laughs> yeah. than zero. But like Yeah, like I didn't realize I had never seen drugs sort of in real life and I I just remember that when I decided to do it, like she had offered it to me before and I, I wasn't interested. Yeah. And I, but I so badly wanted to be normal and right. typical or what I thought was typical. Right. And fit in and totally. And I was like, what could be more? What, like to this point, I have done, like I've fallen into no tropes of normal adolescence, right? right. Like I've been working my tail off. Right. And like, and also, feeling very limited just because of how insecure I was. So here I am like, this is what 18 year olds do. Right. They like hang out with girls and sometimes they do a little cocaine. Yeah, a little cocaine, exactly. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, I have no interest in how this makes me feel right now. I just hope she's watching. Right, oh wow. And you know, she wound up kissing another guy at that party later that night. No way. So good for her. I hope they're still together. Right. But I was like. And you became a drug addict. I was like, these drugs are very effective. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was from that moment on that I didn't, uh, I didn't take a sober breath for four years. Wow. I overdo things. Uh, apparently. Yeah. What I don't understand is you even talk about this in the book. And again, I totally agree. It's like when you're funny, though, it, you become a million times more attractive. Mm. So you think and you were and you had fame. I would think girls threw themselves at you 
at a young age. Like, they may not threw themselves, but like there were girls that you could have gone out with or who wanted to go out with you that you would meet or recognized you or whatever. Never? No. Um, I mean, here's the truth. You're probably 100% right. And this guy, uh, this great guy that I knew that um, I met in, in sobriety would always say, somebody's going to have a good day today. It might as well be me. If you walk around with your head, head up your ass all day, opportunity is going to pass you by. And that was me. Like, okay. Mm, I just, I wasn't capable of receiving that. Right. So you weren't like, you were kind of just not like even present to even know. I was oblivious. Yeah, you're oblivious. Yeah. So then four years, so, so then, sorry, it's like, I had to just go back to that because I was surprised. But <laughs> so four years, you're now like, a. how often are you doing it? You're like, are you like, are you snorting Coke all day, <laughs> all morning? Like, what was your routine back then? I was managing, but I was- You're functional? Function-ish, but I was totally like- burning down, like just burn. <laughs> We're very professional over here, Josh. Listen, I've been, <laughs> I, um, I no, I was just, I was just burning down my life in the sense like yeah. I was just, I was just a, a cliche. Like what I felt was sowing my wild oats meant that I was just unreliable and in many instances unprepared and putting myself, you know, at risk. And um, and I'm glad there weren't camera phones at that time because I feel very lucky that I'm the one right. sort of outing myself instead of like a bad mugshot. Right. Well, because you were saying you're a drug, like you're an addict between what, 18 and 22-ish? 21, yeah. Oh, 21. Like 17 to 21-ish. Because you, your show ended at 19 and then you went right into, well, you did a few bad, like, movies whatever yeah. right not nothing like to write home about that right? you talk about that was more after that i kind of got like a big movie right after that oh which one did you get after that the judd apatow one oh that was a judd Ap okay so i thought it was the other movies that you were like you went to somewhere and you did one with like chris brown and all that when were those those were like after i got sober and that was like kind of oh. pay the bills oh yeah. okay that was a pay the bill okay so you got Fun the movies. Right, exactly. <laughs> you can get right. them on the, it's called Battle of the Year and it's a 3D dance movie I did with Chris Brown. Wow. And I met my best friend, well, one of my best friends while doing the movie. So it was very worth it. Okay, well, there you go. You got oh, something yeah. out of it. So while this was going on, your show ends and that's when you got the Judd Apatow movie, like right after that? Yeah, pretty pretty soon. And you were, but you were like, Let's talk about that, the whole thing, because like you were, you were like a drug addict at that point. Yeah, I was sort of totally, um, I, I was in the throes of, of my, my disease and I, but more so I was just a total cliche. And, but I felt like. What again, movie? How'd you get the part? Like, talk about that part. I auditioned for this movie. It was with Owen Wilson and Danny McBride and, and Judd being sort of like the oracle of funny people that he is. What's, was, the movie? What's it called? It's called Drill Bit Taylor. What is it called? Dro? Drill bit, like a drill, drill bit. bit Taylor. Yeah. Is it out? Yeah. Oh, did it do well? Yeah, I think it did fine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I never remember that one, but go ahead. It was, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't his biggest Pineapple hits. Express. Yeah, it wasn't Pineapple <laughs> Express. Okay. But it was, yeah, it was a really funny people and Seth Rogen wrote it and with, oh. with a friend of mine and he, Seth was one of the writers, I should say. But yeah, I basically just like, I auditioned and I remember Judd saying to me like, you're not right for who you auditioned for. You're not right for this character, but you're funny. Like, he's like, so why don't I just write you in a small part, but come hang out on set and like write jokes for other people, just be around and we'll figure out ways to put you in scenes. And- Does that happen? It's so rare. 
And if, wow. and if Judd says that to you, you're like, <gasps> it's sort of, yeah, you're being anointed a little bit. And now, and now you have to show up. And I like, it wasn't anything like overly, um, it, it was just like a bunch of bad decisions in a row or, or bad behavior. It was just like being a little late, being kind of tuned out. Cause I just was like, I had just finished a show. I was on for five years and I felt like I was making up for lost times, just being like an unreliable kid. Right. I oh. just wasn't capable of being what he needed me to be at that point. So I basically just squandered what could have been an incredible opportunity. Cause he really knows how to make like stars. Yeah, and especially like funny Jewish guys. He's a master. That's, I was gonna say, like you're like you're like perfectly. You're primed for that position. He's such. I, I got to say, like Jed has always been, even then, and and still now, he's been incredibly good to me and like a, a total class act. And so for years, it haunted me. For sure, I got sober, you know, pretty soon after that, and I was like, oh. And while like I've totally made my peace with what came after that, it it certainly was like high on my list of like people that I needed to properly like make right with because he was so good to me and, and he's one of the best dudes. So what, so that whole experience, so he told you to come on set and like, just basically, did you, did you, you like end a up, utility player? Yeah. Did you write any, end up writing any jokes for anybody? Did you like connect with Owen or did you do any of that stuff? Maybe or? a little, but certainly I didn't take advantage of it in the way I could have. Right. Yeah. You squander that opportunity. I think that's probably the best way to say yeah. it. Yes. Oh, and so had, by the way, did since then, cause that was when you were 19, 20. Yeah. Have you ever worked with him since? No, but like if I ever do get the chance, like I don't want it to, because in a weird way, if I if I was working for him, I'd feel like he's yet again doing me a solid when mm -hmm. I owe him. So I like if you ever need someone to do extra craft service, exactly. or like hold a light <laughs> or a boom, like I'll do it, whatever he needs no. for free. Like, like why not, right? I owe him. So um, you never like so you, you said you said that you ran into him recently or something, mm -hmm. but since then, before that, you never ran into him for all these years. No, we ran into each other a few times and, and I was able to, to apologize. And, and again, like as are most things in our life, like I feel like when something like that happens or we feel oh. like we've really, um, we've really messed up. Right. So much of it is like your poor deeds or your misgivings, like it weighs heaviest on you. Right. Cause I don't think Judd's thought about me. A lot exactly. Then. I just think it was like, Oh, he like, he's not the guy I needed. So, you know, I'll move on to the next. Right. But I'm glad that I've been able to sort of to to make it right. So then, what made what prompted you to end up becoming sober? Then was it that with that experience that you're like, oh shit, I screwed up that. I have to kind of get my act together, or what kind of? Yeah, there were so many moments like between ruining relationships and close calls, and also just breaking my mom's heart like on a daily basis, which is corny, but it was totally. So she me. knew that you were like in trouble. Yeah. And she tried to help and you just, she, you just wouldn't let her or you just denied it or what like happened. Yeah. You guys are really close, it seems. So I think she just kind of knew that she was powerless. Like people are powerless. Totally with, true. With people who are addicted. And, and I would say like, you know, when we're in, in our disease, like, it, you know, I, you become nuclear and you radiate everyone around you. Like, and, and it's only the people who have the guts to walk away but like, who who can make that choice? You know, I, I have a three-year-old son now. And like, I think about God forbid, if you walk down that same road, like how could I ever detach myself, which is really the only thing you can do. 
um, until that person finds some sort of kind of recovery. Like, how can I detach myself from this kid? Like, he's my best friend. Like, I can, even if he was totally self-sabotaging himself, I would do everything in my power to save him, which might not be like the healthiest way. But yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I don't know if I've talked about this on any podcast yet, but I, I talk about it in the book. So here I am and I'm 21 and these things have like all sort of compounded over years. And I wound up in that time doing like one of the best movies I'd ever done, which was called The Wackness. And it's with Sir Ben Kingsley mm-hmm. and Method Man and it goes to Sundance again. And now like I'm there and I'm thin and I'm in this movie that I'm proud of. And I'm not a fucking kid star anymore. I'm a proper actor, like with a knight, I'm acting with Gandhi. Like, oh my God, I've arrived. And I remember sitting there and like, and who, who did we mention earlier? Tarantino's at the screening. I'm like, the goat, the greatest of all time is here watching this thing that I'm in. And I, Woke up the next morning and I was like, I got to get out of here because I just felt totally uncomfortable. It's like that Groucho Marx quote. Like, yes. I never want to be a part of a club that would have me as a member. Like here I was, I thought I'd arrived at the finish line and I was deeply uncomfortable and I was like, get me out of here. And it was one of those rare moments where, you know, people like me, I, I respond well to catastrophe, right? Which is why like if someone who, you know, gets a DUI, God forbid, or you know, their wife leaves them or whatever. It's like a wake up call. And it wasn't catastrophe. It was this wonderful moment, but it was that moment where I I said to myself, oh, you're bottomless. Mm -hmm. Like nothing will fill you. Like you tried it with food, you tried it with drugs and alcohol. Now you have success and nothing is going to fill you up. And I got sober two weeks later. That was like, I like acted and I certainly had, I just like thrown that in the back of my mind. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I just need to be a, a superhero now and, and that'll make me feel okay. Right, right, right. I could have kept going, but thankfully those rare wake up moments, if you take advantage of them, you can make a big change. Absolutely. You gotta be, you gotta be like very cognizant of those moments though. But yeah. So, because weren't you playing a superhero? Was that the Chris Hemsworth one? What was that one? That was just a big action movie. Oh, that was a big action (laughs) movie. Okay. And that, so then how did you transition then? Okay. So, so then like, thankfully you got sober. What happened between that and then making the jump? Because you made it, you were very successful. You are very successful (laughs) on YouTube or Vine and like, how did you, because you didn't have that audience, you didn't have those followers. Cause now you said in the book also, like now if you're off a show, you have all these followers who follow you to the next project or sure. could you have your people? How did you kind of like make a name for yourself or kind of grow this huge following on social media? Well, and I, what made you do it? Besides think, the fact that necessity, I guess, <laughs> like everybody else. Well, to your point, like, I think it was this perfect storm. And, but we all have a version of a perfect storm in our life where we're uniquely able to take advantage of something that, you know, I, 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 I think about so many times, there were so many moments where I would get, before I really sort of uh, devoted myself to learning how to properly act and not just sort of leaning on the fact that I had some sort of natural comedic ability. Right. There were so many times where the feedback from an audition would be like, he's too big, too like shticky, like yeah. broad sitcom comedy. Like that works for that and kind of only that. Right. And I was like, well, it makes sense. It's where I, where I learned it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, That's my whole career, you know? Yeah. Exactly. But 
social media and Vine videos specifically being six seconds long, like you, I really benefited from that kind of sense of humor because it was six seconds. You had to, it was really hard to be subtle. Right. You had to capture people quick by being big and funny. And so I had had that training. And then I also just, you know, I knew how to do a setup and a punchline in six seconds. Right. And comedy is economy. No one ever says, oh, that joke was great, but it could have been a little more wordy. Yeah, you know? exactly. So it was perfect for you. The Vine was like a perfect yeah. setup for what you were, you were trained and, and know to do. So yes. it went, so that was your first Vine. And so how many followers did you have on Vine? So I started out really early on Vine and I just did it for fun. And I was also in a unique place in my career where I'd just been having these natural ups and downs and I'd have, do a big movie. And then I'd go over a year without that and have to worry about how I was going to pay my rent. Right. So wow. I'd been at the mercy of the gatekeepers for, you know, 15 years now. Totally. And it was, it's maddening. I mean, I know so many actors like me who are in their forties or fifties and eventually, and, and they go, I would have loved to have a wife and kids, but I never had the stability that I needed. Totally. And so at 24, when I or 25, when I, I started to have success in this thing, and I was really lucky because I talk about in the book, like I had this apostle, my buddy Rami, who was really big in social media early on. And he said, whatever this thing is that you're doing, don't let anyone tell you what it is because they don't know. He's like, I work for a social media company. I don't know. Right. He's like, it's 2013. Yeah. He's like, but having hundreds of thousands of people following you, telling you what they like, um, is really powerful. So I would suggest you lean into this and don't be afraid. And I leaned in and three months later I had, you know, 9 million followers. In three months? Uh, maybe not, maybe like four or five, but within a year I had 9 million. From like when I started to mid 2014, I had 9 million followers. And then, so when Vine closed or stopped or whatever, <laughs> closed, you know, whatever, how do you say it just stopped being there? What was your next platform? Was it uh, TikTok or is it Instagram or were you doing it all or what? Yeah, it's sort of like it, having this big presence in one place allowed for it to sort of be to, I guess you'd say like disseminate to all these different places. Right. So I wound up getting a nice size following on Instagram and Twitter. And then inevitably when Vine went away, I knew I had to make the leap to YouTube because that was where people like me could go to continue to make good money totally, and to also have some success. But again, it was doubling down on this thing that at the time I was doing it was sort of looked at as you do this to become legitimate in TV and film. Is that crazy? You don't go backwards. It's reverse. It was exactly. Now it's the reverse. Like you need, that's why I said out of necessity, like you have what, 12, 13 million followers on Instagram. Sure. Like 8 million on TikTok. Yeah. 3.67 on YouTube. I saw all hey. this stuff, right? I mean, like, so like now people will put you in a movie just because you have good stats and then you can sure. bring people. And like people, like that's what they're doing with everything else. It's like not even about and he, that's like, that's what people are looking at in terms of, well, can he, he has the audience that will watch this movie or do this show. Yes. And they never had that before. So now you have the power in a way, right? No, it certainly helps. And it's, you have to, I mean, you, uh, uh, the master of it is the rock. Like, oh. I, 
that's like a whole other, I mean, he's like, that's like, that's ridiculous. Well, uh, I think this is coming out in March, but when we're recording this, it's a week after the Super Bowl. Do you think The Rock did push-ups before he introduced the teams at the Super Bowl? Yeah, maybe a couple. (laughs) He looked pumped. Yeah, he looked really pumped. Small waist, good for him. He looks, um, by the way, he, how does he, he's like, he's not a kid. He's about what, 45 years old now? Yeah. He look. How does he have such tone on his muscles? Like I cannot believe it. I think genetics don't suck. Gen- for sure, <laughs> genetics don't suck. But he's the most disciplined dude. Like oh, like, most disciplined and the nicest. The nicest. The nicest. The big ones. The the undeniable huge ones always are. It's the middle. It's people like me in the middle that are usually jerks. I was going to say that actually. <laughs> That's what makes you so impressive. Actually, no, I swear to God. I know you're saying it as a joke, but like. In my experiences, the ones who are like just massive like him yeah. are so nice and kind. It's their people that are usually assholes a lot sure. of times. Sure. And then the ones who are like the biggest like jerk offs are the ones who are like trying to be like the rock or like, tr- like they're like they haven't gotten there quite yet, but they're kind of like kind of famous. Mm. They're the they're the worst. Oh, yeah. But you're not. You're great. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm really, look, I'm, I'm really lucky. That's a backhanded compliment on my end. I didn't mean it that way. I, well, I took it as a front hand. Okay, one. good. <laughs> so I'll take it. Look, I, I talk about, I say this at the end of the book. I, I say, there are moments where I'm like literally looking at my son, like blissed at, like I'm having this bliss of like watching him like do something as innocuous as playing like on a gymnasium floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I'll say to my shrink, who I've known for the last 20 years, I'll say like, cause it's, it works. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll say like, I can't believe how good my life is. Like, I don't deserve this. And he'll say to me like, of course you do. Like I've known you for 20 years. I've watched you walk through this. Like, yeah. You didn't cheat it. Like you did the work and like, you deserve this. And while I am inclined to trust a clinician of his caliber and someone that I've paid this much money to. I was like, going to say. Like the equivalent of a nice size, mid-size sedan. Oh, more than that, probably. probably. For 20 years? I mean, he, he has your house in the hills right now. Yeah. Well, shout out SAG Insurance, who covers most of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. Exactly. <laughs> but I, but, and while I, I think it's important to accept that, what he's saying, because I, I think he is right in many ways, but- secretly in the back of my head, like, I know who I am. Like, I know where I came from. I know what my mom had to face to give someone like me an opportunity. And I know, like, be it the food and then drugs and alcohol and just, like, my own ego stuff. Like, someone like me shouldn't have a life like this, the way I'm built, like, at my core level. And it's only by doing the right thing over and over again that I suddenly got, like, the life of a respectable dude. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but... All jokes aside, you 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 kind of like you said, you've done all the you do the work, you show up, you're very consistent, but you also seem to be like you got a, you have a very good like soul and heart. You seem like a very good human. You do, <laughs> and that's karma too, maybe too. You know, like it does seem like things. You know, your everyone's life has ebbs and flows, mm. right? I mean, you've just had more of them, maybe, but. Um, how much, can I ask you a couple more questions? I know I've been like talking and talking. Sure, sure. Like, so now that you're now on YouTube and like, are you now making so much more money than you ever did as like an actor? Because like, that's where all the money is, right? Like now with all the, like now you have all these people like Instagram, social media, that's when the money now starts to pour in, no? Certainly, I mean, that was- Like advertisers and brands and- yeah, when I did my first, I remember I was on Vine and 
it was I'd been on it for over a year, and I remember this random company hit me up to to promote a dating app, and they were like, "We'll pay you five thousand dollars to promote this dating app," and I was like, "Okay, okay, exactly." Like, I knew that other people were like you know, getting these, these deals, but I I had never done that because truly for me, what I wanted to your point that you made from social media was like, I knew I needed some leverage. Mm -hmm. I needed, cause I didn't have some hot TV show or movie I was coming off of. Like I had been, you know, having highs and lows for a couple of years. So in many cases, the feedback from my, my manager from a audition would be, they think you're great, but like this guy's just coming off a way cooler project than you. Right. And so they're going to go with him. So I thought at least now I have a little leverage to be like, well, they can, you know, I can help promote the film or whatever it is. Totally. But another byproduct was, you know, I say like people aren't paying a 10 X multiple on commercial ads for the Super Bowl for the love of the game. No, it's for the eyeballs. It's for the eyeballs. It's all for the eyeballs. I mean, so are you also now doing a ton of, for people who are listening, I mean, yes, they don't have, they didn't, you also have access to a lot of other people who can help build each other's social media. Mm-hmm. Like, are you doing tons of collaborations? I mean, YouTube, I find to be, and I'm, you know, YouTube is the one I find to be the most difficult. It's very hard to grow on YouTube. The Mm. algorithms are very difficult. How are you doing it now? Like, are you doing it a lot? Like, how do people do it? Are you doing it with tons of collaborations with friends who also have big followings? I... So I, I haven't really posted on YouTube for the last two years. And you have a team of people who help you. No, it's just me. No way. Yeah. You don't have a social media person who helps you. <laughs> no. My wife tells me when stuff sucks. That's it? <laughs> yeah. Get out with all those followers. You have nobody helping you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry for this. So by the way, he, uh, <laughs> I just want to say we're in my kitchen. Josh and I are in my kitchen because my uh, podcast area is being re- refigured. And it now smells like paint. So you might die of poisoning. I apologize. Solid. Hey, I, you know, sober 14 years. I'll take a freebie. Oh, exactly. I was going to say, you're going to get high off these fumes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, okay. no. Go um, ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably why I have the following that I do, just because it's very honest. Super like, authentic. Well, it, you're authentic. Me. But the, the thing is, the amount of, I'm talking even just content-wise, the amount of content that you have to make. How yes. much content are you making? Again, like now it's, you know, like two years ago, I I wound up doing, I I wound up doing this show called Turner and Hooch for Disney Plus, which Which is still on, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So it took me to Vancouver for eight months and I kind of, but slowly throughout like social media was great. And at the height of it, I was, you know, doing better at that than I'd ever financially than I ever did as an actor because it just was so it just was this moment where I had attached myself at an, at a really early time. How much can people make on this on social media when they have millions of followers like that? I don't. I mean, I don't know what other people like. I mean, you hear these stories. They just came out with a report that Mr. Beast, who's like the biggest YouTuber, made fifty five million dollars yeah, last year. Crazy. Such a nice guy too. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> so lovely. He's lovely. You should have him on. I was going to say I'm going to write that on my little piece of paper, Mr. Beast. I did read that by the way, and he's he is good massive. People. Yeah. Is he? Yeah. You, are you friends with? Him? Yeah, I'm bu- uh, yeah, we're buddies. Okay, good. Will you make an intro for me? <laughs> I, I don't know if we're that close. Okay, well, <laughs> who, who needs you? No, just kidding. <laughs> or like okay. the Demelios, like people. Oh, I mean, you, you hear of that's crazy. unbelievable wealth that that's achievable. But another one's Addison Ray, who's making more money than God right now. Yeah, I think it's you know they're they're lucky to be really good at a time where their abilities are rewarded. 
on social media. Okay. You said the word abilities. What are these people really famous? You, I get, because you have, you are a comedian, you're an actor, you have talent. Some of these people, what are they famous for? I don't know. I, I would see, you don't I, know either. Most people don't, by the way. I, you know, I try not to, I really just try to stay in my lane when it comes to that stuff. And I also like, don't know, I don't want to be that grown up. And I, I find myself doing that at times where like, like there was this great meme because I, I keep talking about the Super Bowl that was, if you're hyped about this year's Super Bowl show, it's time for your colonoscopy. Mm. And I was <laughs> Hilarious. like, that's yes. awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. And that's me. Like right. I literally was like, finally something great. Yes. I'm sure there were 15 year olds that were like, where's the baby? Yeah, like, exactly. And Juice World. well, RIP Juice World, but like, of like the music that that's that they care about. Totally. And I don't ever want to be that guy because I grew up with those adults who were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so cute now to like tell that's millennials true. and Gen Z people to F off because like you have no taste. But I think we've been doing that through history. And we don't know because we're not at that. We don't know. We don't know too. You know yeah. what I mean? Obviously something resonates. Something's tracking. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it is. And I, I don't know what it is, but something obviously because if a hundred million people or le like legit following some of these people, it is insane. It's like uh, we we were sort of there when you know Kim Kardashian came to fame. Mm -hmm. If you make fun of Kim Kardashian, you're corny. Mm -hmm. Like if you can't respect her and like her business acumen, her ability, like and maybe because she didn't start out as a traditional ex mm -hmm. or like, but she forged her own path and she's like certainly doing it at a level I never could. So. While like I might not watch her reality show, like I can totally respect her as like a badass businesswoman who's crushing it. Cr crushing is like an understatement. Right. <laughs> no one ever thought in a million years that, that they would have the longevity that they have. I mean, it's been like how many years have they been super famous? It's not even. Yeah. It's insane. Oh, and it, by the way, my my wife and I met uh, Chris um, at a she's a beast soiree. Yeah, she was so nice. Really lovely, lovely, <laughs> lovely. She's the, she's. I mean, is it? She's like a beast. That woman. I mean, the the whole family now have offspring that they're going to be famous until like, you know, three thousand. You know, like twenty ninety nine plus 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 plus. I yeah. mean, they're never going away. You no, know? they're they're crushing it. They are. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So then, how are you growing it now? What's your new? What's 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 in it? What are you going to be doing now? What's your next? I've sort of moved over to TikTok a little bit just because it's sort of Vine done better. Yeah, like strike me down, but it seems like they. You know, it's it, we've seen this example throughout history, like there's the initial innovator and then there's someone who takes the idea and really knows how to how to optimize. Really? It. Yeah. And that's what happened with Vine and TikTok. So and it's also much, you know, it, it's not as heavy lifting and it allows me to like do how I met your father or Turner and Hooch or, you know, all this stuff. Like I'm going to go work on this thing for a couple weeks in New Mexico next month. Like, so I can kind of do both. And it's only when I'm doing one thing that I start to get uncomfortable. Yeah. Like when I was just doing social media, I was like, but what about this thing that I devoted my whole life to? Right. And then when I doubled down on that and, and was willing to go back to acting class and do the work that was required, I had great results. That's great. I know I saw, so you went to acting class after you like been, have been an actor for many years. Yes. What, why did you do that? Just to hone your skills and become better, just to kind of keep yourself sharp because or just to learn how to act. What if you're, what, what, what client of yours would you look at them and, and say, 
Are you nuts if they said to you? I know, I, I know you're going to say like, be a co- everyone needs a coach and all this stuff. That too. But like, what if someone, what if one of your clients said, but I worked out in mid-December. I knew you were going to say that. Right? Yeah. I know. Like, I totally agree with you. Are you nuts? <laughs> exactly. It's consistency and, and honing those skills and keeping them sharp. But you're right to say like, we look at actors because it's so, it's like alchemy, right? Like when acting's good, you can't put your finger on it. Right, right. It's like, you look at an athlete, you go like, oh, he must have worked the hardest, mm-hmm. like had the most reps. Right. Like, but you look, watch an actor and you go like, wow, they must just be blessed. Totally true. And there is, of course, to any great at anything, there is that sort of intangible. But usually, like, it's the thing about Kobe, like, win or lose, he was doing free throws after the game. Totally. When ability meets obsession, it can be pretty awesome. You just said it. The ability meets obsession. You have to be obsessed. No one's ever going to reach greatness with, like, doing something, like, kind of sometimes. Yes. You have to have that obsession. I really do believe that myself. Uh, so I understand that. So you're doing acting now. Should you do it in, do you do it all the time? Are you back in class? Forth? Yeah, classes. Yeah. So like when I was doing this new Disney Plus show and I was like the dude on it, like every Sunday night we would meet over FaceTime, my, my coach, Sharon and I, and we go through the script and then everything I do now, I'll just kind of, and sometimes it's, it's a little, and sometimes I'll play like this, this part I'm playing on how I met your father it's just kind of like a sweet, funny dude. And I'm like, I, I, I kind of know this. Yeah, like, exactly. I think I can probably handle this. But most things where I'm like, I want to challenge myself or it's out of my wheelhouse. I love to get her take on things. That's amazing. Now, what's your, what's your most, what's the role that you want the most? Like your, if you could have any role, what would be your next? I don't have it. You don't? I, no, because I, I used to have those dreams and then like, whatever the right thing, like whatever the next thing is, is the right thing. I just want to be challenged and I don't want to, I feel really lucky that I have these two things working for me or like I'll write a book or social media or, or acting. Cause like, I know that if I was like the funny neighbor on a sitcom, I might feel soul crushed. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Cause it's a lot of time too. And I don't mean to make light of it. It's a blessing that anyone who can make a living as an actor is really lucky. But I am lucky enough to say like, I don't know if I want to spend eight months a year away from my kid right. doing something that I don't think is great just to make a living. And and having that other sort of opportunities, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. Now, is there any kind of advice that you have that you've been given that you live by or I know you love Ben Kingsley, right? Um, You know, allow a good life to be the result of good living. And, you know, the the good days or what do I say? The bad days are here to teach us and the good days are here to remind us what we're fighting for. and I'm full of them. I'm full of, you know, plenty of recovery isms and like, or like slogans. But, um, oh, another thing I always like is, um, help your fellows boat across and your, or help, help your fellows boat to the other side and yours too will cross. I like that. You know, be of service, service to other people. And I, I had a podcast for a while and my friend Dylan Lowy, who not anymore. I have another one called male models, a new one. Oh, I just saw it. It's brand new, right? Yeah. Me and my buddy yeah. Joe. Yeah. I saw that. And, uh, and when I interviewed Dylan, who was a uh, speechwriter for um, President Biden, really impressive guy. And he's like, I asked him something similar. And, and he was like, 
my number one advice in life is do favors for people. He's like, because at the very least, just the good feeling you get is your instant repayment. <laughs> like you're instantly repaid. But also, secondly, you're putting out goodwill into the world and it will find you again when they have the opportunity to pass on something good. Totally. I agree with that. I'm yeah. Like, who's that? T- who's that guy? T- Dylan Lowy. Oh, Dil- Dylan Lowy. Okay. Yeah. And what is your podcast about? Male models. It's just me and my buddy Joe talking about like the headlines and stories from our life for 30 minutes a week. Oh, that's fun. It's fun. Just a comedy podcast. That's totally fun. I feel like, like was there another? I feel like I didn't even look at my sheet one time, <laughs> but that's because my printer wasn't working. But I feel like I've asked you like a crap ton of questions. You've oh, been this has been great. Um, Thank you for having me. No, you've been amazing. And like, I feel like if I have, did I forget anything? He's like, Will's like, please wrap this already. Um, well, the, the book is called Happy People Are Annoying. Uh, it is, I really do. I recommend it no matter what age you are. It is a very good read. Super well done. Very funny. Um, oh, I know what I wanted to ask you, but now I forgot it again. But is there any, com- who are your favorite comedians? That's what I want. That's just like a simple question. Oh, man. I mean... I, you know, I, I always say growing up at like nine years old, my best friends were like Jim Carrey and it was, you know, it, I, I would, my best friends were Billy Madison and Ace Ventura and like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Like, That's right. Oh, well, yes. Th- those were my, my heroes. But now, I mean, I, um, I really like my new favorite obsession is Chris DiStefano. Um, he's got huge podcasts, huge comedian crushing it, but He's he's pretty damn funny. He's good. Everyone loves Sebastian. He's very funny. Sebastian is so crazy good, he's and he's clean. Can you believe it? He's amazing. He's like a he's like the new Jerry Seinfeld in cleanliness, he's or like so Jim good. Gaffigan's amazing too. Yeah, they're all like those three Bill guys Burr. are Jedi's. Him. Bill Burr's a genius. Beyond Sebastian's so rich. Oh, <laughs> unbelievable! You know he sells out Madison Square Garden twice a night. Oh, he's, he's awesome. And he seems like a really good dude, like beautiful family. I'm, I'm happy for he's, him. Like, he's amazing. He's a really good, I, he's one of my favorites. And do you hang out with a lot of different celebrities and, and actors or do you have like a bunch of different friends? No, I like civilians. You like civilians. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, all right. Well, this is what the book is called. Again, Happy People Are Annoying. Please uh, pick it up if you, if uh, you want to laugh and hear a really, really good story. Um, and if uh, you don't follow Josh, you should. And jo- where is it, Josh? It just, what is your, what is um, your? At Chua Peck on Instagram and then like Josh Peck on everything yeah, else. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's got bazillions of people following <laughs> him. So he won't even notice if you follow him or not. But uh, you are so delightful. Thank you again for Thank coming you. on this, this podcast. Awesome. Really, I wish you nothing but success and nachas and happiness. And <laughs> I had to say that. And uh, again, thank you. This has been great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Habits and hustle. Time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind. Don't stop. Keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out. Hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries. Tune in. You can get to know them. Be inspired. This is your moment. Excuses. We ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast. Powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. 
On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.